Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Michelle Siegel. She is the Commissioner of the Department of Consumer Protection in Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, you are nearly a year into the job as Commissioner. You've been with the agency certainly longer than that, but how's it going so far? So far, it's been great. We have a great team at the department, and everybody works really hard and is really committed to the mission. So I've been with the agency for uh, closer to seven years, but yeah, about almost exactly a year as commissioner, and it's been great so far. One of the things that the Department of Consumer Protection has been known for recently is the state's relatively new medical marijuana program, and it's a program that continues to expand. Tell us how that is happening. So that's definitely a program we're really proud of at the department. Uh, We have been, and it's something I've been working on throughout my career there. So it's grown tremendously. The law creating the program passed in 2012. Um, We sort of did some regulations and got some businesses up and running and really started um, expanding significantly starting probably around um, the end of 2014. And we now have over 25,000 patients Uh, in the state that are benefiting from this medicine. So it's been a really great success. And we've seen that tremendously just over the last couple of years. We've gone from about 8,000 patients to now this 25,000. And we're also seeing with our physicians in the state, while early on in the program, there were not many doctors who were ready to really use this as a medicine for their patients, fewer than 100. Now we have over 850 physicians who are at least willing to try with a few of their patients to certify them and see how this product works. So it's it's been a great success, and we've now adding more dispensary facilities, and those are the retail outlets. They're basically like pharmacies that patients can go to get medicine. So how does it work for patients? I, I guess they have to be certified by a doctor, and they have to have certain medical conditions in order to qualify. That's right. So there's currently 22 conditions where if you're an adult patient, you could qualify for the medical marijuana program. So the process you go to, first, uh, you need to go to your physician, and they need to certify that, yes, you have one of these conditions, but they also certify to some other things, basically that they believe that medical marijuana, the the benefits are going to outweigh the risks, and that this is a suitable product for this patient to be having. And so unlike with other medications where uh, a physician will prescribe the medicine here, they're certifying to us that this patient meets the requirements of the program. And then once they've done that, a patient will go home, go on their own computer, um, or, or sometimes physicians may help set them up, but they'll, they'll go and complete their registration process. And so the department has to confirm things like we need to confirm a patient's identity. We need to confirm that they're a Connecticut resident because this is entirely within the state of Connecticut to avoid certain federal laws. And so once you do that, within a few weeks, we would send a patient uh, their medical marijuana card. You don't have to list all 22, but give us an idea of what some of the ailments uh, covered under this program are and 
is that list evaluated and expanded at any point? It is. So it started off actually as a much smaller list, but it's pretty significant conditions, things like cancer, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, um, Crohn's disease. So there's 22 of them, as I said. And if you go to our website, um, you can visit us, ct.gov slash DCP. And if you look under programs, you can find the medical marijuana program and see the full list of conditions. And also uh, a couple of years ago, uh, patients under the age of 18 with very a much smaller subset of conditions could also uh, be registered. And those can be expanded, and they have been. And the way that works, we have a board of physicians, which um, it's a, a bunch of doctors who help advise us on the program. And so um, what patients can do is uh, you can petition to have a condition added. And this board will listen to information for and against having that condition added to the list. They'll lend their own medical expertise to that, and then they will advise the commissioner, who can then, through regulations, add that condition We actually have seven that we're looking to add now based on recommendations from that board. Now, that's the patient side of this, but there's also an effort to expand the number of dispensaries in Connecticut. And in fact, you received a a lot of interest from various companies looking to do that. Yeah, we um, just recently. So last time we added um, dispensaries, we began the program with six. And then a couple years ago, we added three more. And there were only about 8,000 patients at that time. Now we're up to 25,000 patients, so uh, there's definitely a need to have more of these retail outlets. It's going to create a lot more convenience for patients, um, create a little bit more competition in the market. So we um, requested applications. We got 73 in. Um, we're looking to add somewhere probably in the 3 to 10 range. So that's going to be a big process for us, and we're going to spend you know several months. We need to do a really thorough review. We look at a lot of things the financial suitability. We want to look at their security plan. We want to make sure their location is one that makes sense. So we uh, will be doing that, going through all those applications, um, and then we will select some um, people to give more licenses to. Security must be a a big issue when you're talking about dispensing medical marijuana. Oftentimes, dispensaries don't have a lot of signage or advertising outside. And that's uh, built into our regulations. So one of the really important things for us when we developed this program is we didn't want it to be like some of the models you see out West, where it's really kind of in people's face and really kind of almost more of a recreational program. Even the ones that call it medical, they really don't treat it the way you treat other medications. And what we really wanted in Connecticut was a true pharmaceutical program. And we've been really successful at doing that. And one of the, the ways we do that is we limit advertisements. And really, it's, it's in a lot of ways based on similar limits you would see in the pharmaceutical industry. So advertising needs to be truthful. It can't be targeted towards recreational use. It can't be targeted towards underage users. So it really needs to be just like you would see for another pharmaceutical product. That's the kind of uh, advertising that we would allow. How do you deal with the, the federal government, which really has no provisions for medical marijuana, and it seems in many cases kind of just looks the other way when states do this. And that's basically, there's nothing we can do about federal law. Federal law is what it is. Now, there has been guidance and um, came out under the Obama administration um, suggesting federal priorities would not go after well-regulated state programs. And so we've tried to have a really well-regulated program in Connecticut and have succeeded in that. And so we think that at least helps to offer some protection. But at the end of the day, obviously, administrations change and priorities change. So 
there's nothing we can ultimately do, but we think by having a program that's truly medical and that is secure and that where growth is being well managed, we're going to reduce that federal risk. That also poses some challenges for the businesses that operate dispensaries in, in terms of cash handling and banking and things like that, doesn't it? It's certainly a challenge. And so there's also some federal guidance for banks, but there is some risk for a bank <coughs> to be working with a medical marijuana dispensary. So um, we do the best we can to create some, to get information out to banks and to, again, assure them that that we're vetting our businesses and that we're running a tight program so that, again, the risk can be lower, but we can't control it completely. When you think about marijuana, you probably think about smoking it. But (laughs) when it comes to medical marijuana, it's dispensed in any number of forms. It is. And I think early on, the smokable was more of a popular delivery system, but we're seeing more and more people or there's edibles, there's tinctures, which is a little bit of a, like a liquid you could mix maybe with tea or something. Um, there's cooking oils. So there's a lot of variety <coughs> in our products. And as the program has grown, more and more patients are taking advantage of these different options. There have been proposals in the legislature to expand marijuana to cover the recreational side of it. Does the agency have a position? And I gather you would be involved in that in some way if it ever became law. So we don't have an official position with regard to the wisdom of doing that. Certainly, um, the bills that have been proposed would generally have it being regulated by the Department of Consumer Protection. And we would look at those laws and we would just, as we did with the medical program, we would do the best we could to to abide by the spirit of the law and regulate it. And keeping sort of public health and safety is always at the forefront of everything we do. And so that would be something we would want to keep in mind, whether it's medical or recreational. So things, you know, we would be interested in, and as different laws are proposed, are how would a recreational program affect the medical program? We do have really strong, great medical program, and there's some research going on. So we would want to preserve that piece for patients who are benefiting from it. Um, but beyond that, we would have to see what the law looks like, what's passed, and we're certainly available to offer input and give uh, policymakers some some information as to how um, regulation sort of program at DCP would look. DCP has also been one of the agencies involved in helping to fight the opioid addiction epidemic by trying to get the word out about proper drug disposal. And in fact, next Saturday, it's National Drug Take Back Day. It's a DEA event, but the messaging from DCP kind of mirrors that of DEA. That's right. And interesting, it's a nice segue because what we're finding for a lot of medical marijuana patients is they're actually able to start using less and less opioids and other pain medications. And there's been a lot of studies out there suggesting that um, medical marijuana may be part of a solution. But it's certainly, there, there's, it's just one piece, and the drug disposal is really important. So National Drug Disposal Day, it's a, great, it's a great event, and it really shines a light and helps amplify a message that we're putting out all year um, of the importance. You don't want medication sitting in your home, sitting in your medicine cabinet, if you don't need them anymore. And so it's really important. And what we're really proud of, we've launched a program um, several years ago, towards the beginning, actually, of my tenure at Consumer Protection, of putting drop boxes in local police stations. And it's great for a number of reasons. One, they're available 24-7 to people. Um, It's obviously a very secure location. You always worry if you have a box full of medicines. You don't want 
somebody's stealing or taking that product. So it's a secure and really convenient place. There's over 80 throughout the state. And so that's something we've been doing. We've had, um, I believe, over 33,000 pounds of medication last year were disposed of. And so that's medicine that's outside of people's medicine cabinets. And it's not available. Um, What we find a lot is people who become addicted to pain medications. Doctors are becoming more sensitive to that and may cut off a prescription. But if you're addicted, you may look elsewhere for um, for those products, including medicine cabinets of friends or family members. So it's always good that you're protecting your friends, you're protecting your family if you get that medicine out of your house once you're done using it. And these drop boxes or these national take um, drug disposal days are great opportunities to do that. Even though there are days dedicated to this, this is something that is ongoing and these drop boxes are available every day of the year. Yeah, absolutely. So if if on April 28th, I believe it is, if that's an opportunity for you to go to one of these events and get rid of stuff, I think that's great. And it's a good annual reminder to people. But if you're busy that day or you forget, you can do it any time of year. And you can go, um, there's a map on our website. It'll show you where all the drop boxes are in the state. Find one near you and uh, do it whenever it's most convenient. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Department of Consumer Protection Commissioner Michelle Siegel. DCP licenses over 200,000 people and businesses a year in about 200 different job categories. Uh, Give us an idea of what some of those job categories are. It's a wide range. So there's certain industries like the liquor control industry. Um, We've talked about drug control, so the pharmaceutical industry. So anybody in those those types of areas, um, whether it's a pharmacist, for example, or a, a restaurant that has a liquor permit or a package store, they all have licenses from us. There's also a wide range of occupations and professions. So accountants, home improvement contractors, they're registered with us, um, engineers, architects, um, electricians, plumbers. It's really, as, as you said, over 200. So it's, it's a lot. Most sort of outside the, the legal or, or healthcare fields, so, you know, we don't license doctors or nurses, but most other professions um, end up needing either a license or registration from us. When it comes to things like home improvement, it's not a bad idea to check on your website and see if the person you're considering is is registered and in good standing. Yeah, it, it's actually a very good idea to do something like that. And it's important for people to understand a couple of things. So we'd have licenses and we have registrations, and that's actually uh, helpful for people to understand the difference. So to get a license, that typically means you've somehow demonstrated some competency in the field. So if you're licensed as an electrician or as an architect or an accountant, it means you've you've fulfilled some sort of educational requirements, you've passed a test, there's there's something to demonstrate that you have expertise in that field. A registration, which is what you get with a home improvement contractor, you don't have to pass a test for that. So you still need to be registered with us and you as a consumer, you'll want to make sure someone is. It shows they're complying with the law, first of all. Also, if you do have a dispute and you get a judgment against the person, if they're registered with us, we have a fund that can be available to compensate up to $15,000 um, of that judgment. So there, there's a lot of benefits to that. But it's definitely important to keep in mind um, you, you want to get references for anybody you're using, whether it's a registration or license, and make sure it's uh, people who've had similar work to what you're looking to do and that they've had that done, and then also make sure they have an active registration or license with uh, the department. What are some of the top complaints the Consumer Protection Department gets from consumers? So home improvement is certainly uh, one we get a lot of. Um, It comes in a variety of ways. Often there's disputes over workmanship, and so the contractor may think they did what they were supposed to do, but it's not what 
the consumer expected. Um, and sometimes you just get people who didn't finish the job altogether. So that's a high area of complaints. And that's why we really want to encourage people, get some references, read and understand your contract. It should have a start date and an end date. And it should give pretty uh, specific details as to what exactly uh, the contractor will be doing for you, what type of work they're going to be doing. So that's an area. Um, another area, usually in our top 10, are uh, charity-related complaints. So that's an area that we uh, regulate, and we also try to get information out to consumers on um, because it's another area that we get a decent number of complaints on. How do you know that a charity you're looking to donate to is a reputable organization? What are some some warning signs that it might not be? So there's a number of things you're going to want to do. If you're thinking of giving to a charity, it's always good to, to plan in advance and sort of decide what are the causes you care about. And what you want to avoid is getting pressured by a phone call or by an email that suddenly appears into donating, or you may not know exactly who you're giving to. So um, certainly do some research, you know, whatever cause it is you care about. And sometimes there's major tragic events um, or natural disasters that you want to uh, give to. Then you can go to places like a Charity Navigator or GuideStar, and they'll give information in terms of like what percent of a charity's money goes towards administrative or overhead costs, what goes to the cause itself. Um so you can get information like that. But it's always good. You want to be sure you're going to the charity of your choice and that you're going to their website or you're, if you find their physical address because you want to mail them a check, that you're getting that information. What you don't want is somebody out of the blue calling you up, asking you to donate, and then you're never quite sure. Are they giving? Are, are you giving to where you think you're giving to? In terms of red flags, um, you always need to be suspicious when somebody – pressures you to give right away or maybe kind of tells you you've already committed to giving money and you don't remember making that commitment. Um, so that's certainly a red flag. If you're pressured to pay right away um, and, and pay in a way where you can't trace the money, if they say, you know, get a prepaid card and just read off the number, or if somebody's trying to get you to wire money directly, uh, those those are certainly red flags. A charity shouldn't be pressuring you they shouldn't be telling you to wire money or to use a prepaid card. You should have. You should be able to make your donation in the way you're most comfortable doing it. So those are certainly um, things to be cautious about. But as with everything, do your homework, think in advance. What is it I want to give to, and then be sure you found the correct place and you, and you've looked it up or or understand what they're doing with your money. Another area of DCP is weights and measures. So whether you're Filling up your car or getting a pound of provolone at the deli, DCP is involved. <laughs> we are. We actually have a metrologist is one of the uh, members of our staff. And so it's one of those things people often don't think about. And I think people take for granted that all the the weights and measures in the state are going to be accurate, that that's something that uh, we have a role in ensuring. Certainly, as you mentioned, gas stations is one area where this comes up a lot, and people want to feel confident that the gallon of gas they're paying for is, in fact, a gallon, and so that's one of the things we do. And while we're there, we also you know, make sure the pumps haven't been tampered with in other ways as well. That brings up a, an important issue, the idea of credit card skimming on gasoline pumps and, and, in fact, on ATMs as well. Fraudsters are getting more sophisticated and can do some of this stuff wirelessly now. It is a challenge keeping up with technology, and and what skimming involves for people who don't know is when you swipe your card, sometimes they will attach a device to that machine so that the the the, 
the scam artist is actually now collecting your credit card information. So it's really hard to always avoid everything, but there are some basic things people can do to try to protect against that. So one, and ATMs, uh, gas stations in particular, are often um, it's often more pronounced where there's not somebody like standing right there. It's a little harder to do this at a retail store where there's a cashier and you'd have to sneak it in in front of them, but certainly not impossible. But so if you're at the gas station uh, and you see that the pump seems to be tampered with or there's a seal over it that's broken, that's certainly a clue to you. This may not, you know, this is probably not one I want to use. And you should alert the attendant so that they know and can can look into it. Um, if you want to, you know, be extra safe, pay inside or use cash, those are certainly options. We'd also encourage, um, if you are going to be paying with your credit card, try to use the pump that's, you know, under a well-lit area or that's closest to where security cameras are, the building are, just that those are harder ones for uh, one of these devices to be placed on. And if you find that you have been victimized, your your credit card information has been compromised, is the first call to the credit card company or the police or, or both? Yeah, you'll certainly want to let let both know. It's definitely your your credit card company, and that we encourage people look at your credit uh, you know bill every single month. See, are there unusual charges? And often, what people do when they get one of these credit card numbers is the first couple of charges will be really low amounts, so they may not register for you because it's only a couple of dollars, and as you're skimming your bill, it doesn't jump out as something to worry about. But for them, that's a way to verify, okay, this is a good number. This number works. And then all of a sudden, it, the charges may go up. So look at your card closely. Um, yeah, if it's been compromised, call up your credit card company. You're going to want to cancel that. And unfortunately, if it's happening to you, um, you're not alone. So your credit card companies now and banks, they're all very familiar with this and are pretty quick. They don't want face, uh, fake charges on these uh, credit cards either. It's just more disputes for them. So they're going to be pretty accommodating and want to get you a new card and cancel that one right away and, and put an alert on it. So that's the thing. And, and definitely let law enforcement know, especially if you think it happened, you know, if you thought maybe it happened at it was skimmed at a, a local gas station or a local retail store. Um, you can protect other people from having something go wrong. In our last minute or so, data security and personal information on the internet is, is out there front and center these days with the news about Facebook and other social media platforms. What advice do you have to people about the amount of information that they put out about themselves on social media? You should always be sensitive to the fact that whatever you're putting out there, it it's going to be broadcast much more broadly than you may realize or have intended. So you may think you're just sharing something with your close group of Facebook friends. But I mean, first, most of us have probably a lot more Facebook friends than we have actual friends in our lives. Um, so you'll want to look at your privacy settings. One, are you only even sharing it with that group of friends? Um, and then two, keep in mind, um, you don't want to put, you know, when you put out information with your birth date, that's uh pretty sensitive information, and you want to be cautious. You don't want to advertise to everybody, hey, I just bought this great big screen TV, and then two weeks later, now you're telling everyone, so excited for this vacation I'm about to take. And now you've just let a fairly large group of people know that, you know, you've got nice stuff in your house, and you'll be gone for a couple of weeks. So things like that certainly be sensitive, too. Um, But in general, I think everybody is starting to become more and more aware that you're kind of being tracked everything you're doing online and that's how you're getting these targeted ads it's not a coincidence you searched for a car 
and then your Facebook feed has advertisements for that same car. So, um, you know, just kind of be sensitive to that. She is Michelle Siegel, the commissioner of the State Department of Consumer Protection. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.